Welcome to Brigadoon Radio. Brigadoon is the place where entrepreneurs and thought leaders discuss emerging issues shaping commerce and culture. Everybody, this is Mark Ross. We thought it'd be a good time to revisit with our good friend, Dr. Mark Stellingworth. You know, Mark and I recorded a conversation in March 15 of 2020, just days into the pandemic. So we thought a year later, let's revisit the topic. So Mark's going to be coming on and we're going to have a good conversation about what we learned, where we're going, and the geopolitics of the vaccine. This is Brigadoon Radio. Mark, how you doing, man? So we are a year after. We actually did a recording on March 15th, uh, 2020. We also just passed the first anniversary when the World Health Organization declared coronavirus, COVID-19, a pandemic. Um, I don't know. What a year, man. A lot's happened. A lot has happened, to say the least. We've had a turnover in the White House. We've had a, the development rapid of a, of a vaccine. I mean, we've had a, some amazing and pretty horrific things happen over the last 12 months. So seeing it on the ground floor has been uh, pretty interesting, to say the least. You know, we moved from hydroxychloroquine to, you know, to, you know, remdesivir, and then moving on into convalescent serum and multi-coil antibodies, all that stuff. And now we're, you know, finally at the vaccine stage. And hopefully, you know, in the next several months, develop uh, some form of herd immunity. And we'll see how that works out, though. It's interesting. When we talked a year ago, and obviously we've talked throughout this whole, you know, crazy uh, life-changing experience, um, you know, we were four or five days into it. Uh, you know, maybe there were a handful of, of deaths in the U.S. In, in the U.S. And now we're at, you know, over 500,000 here in the United States, I think two and a half million around the world. Um, I don't think, I mean, I wasn't prepared for, for seeing those kind of numbers. I don't know what you were. Just the devastation that this disease has caused is really shocking, to be frank. I mean, from my perspective, what do you, where, where do you think? I mean, you're much closer, obviously, to medicine in general and just understanding how fragile life is and just how you know delicate the human body is. Should we be shocked by these numbers or is it just the comp- how life is so complex? Well, you know, I, I think that obviously any loss of human life with, in, in this pandemic has been, you know, uh, pretty tragic. But I, I, there are a couple of things that I would reflect upon. One is that the pandemic in itself, um, you know, half a million Americans lost their lives, more than half a million. But uh, it could have been much worse had we not taken the, you know, the uh, dramatic steps early March. Um, and then we had, you know, kind of a, a second and third wave because of, you know, some uh, lightening of the guidelines and then some, you know, and then just some holidays. Honestly, January was probably the worst month for, uh, you know, for the United States when it came to, uh, uh, you know, infection and, and uh, maybe not necessarily with deaths. But the thing that's really interesting is that, um, you know, it uncovered, a, a, you know, what I think is a you know, fundamental flaw within the, the healthcare system is that the availability of beds in the communities, um, in the outlying communities, uh, not the major metropolitan areas, was a, was a significant problem. You know, we had, you know, difficulty transferring just fundamental patients like heart attacks, heart failure, valve, valve issues to other campuses because they were occupied by COVID patients. And the extenuating, you know, the, 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 the incredible length that these patients could stay on ventilators um, and then the sequela that would happen after that, I mean, it had a serious impact on the entire healthcare system. So not only were lives lost just with uh, COVID, which are obviously, you know, horrific, but 
Um, they were also lost because we could not get people to tertiary centers in a timely fashion. So that's, you know, I think that's one of the things that uh, going forward, we need to really start thinking about is that we talked about closing down these community hospitals because, uh, you know, for greater efficiency and kind of these hub and spoke models where, you know, we would send our patients, you know, to this centralized center. But um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best thing, particularly in a pandemic. And that may change our, uh, our, you know, may reframe our argument about our healthcare access in this country. Yeah, I, I, there's an article, I have no idea where this, but I think it was in the last few weeks, just about the amount of death overall in 2020 was, you know, historic. I mean, not only just from COVID, but from all the other activities. And um, yeah, the whole infrastructure around this, I mean, we're still obviously going through this. We haven't had a lot of time to process it, but just how we handle healthcare in this country and just at the access to assets is really amazing. You know, Italy, I read today that they're creating some kind of like healthcare train where they'll literally put on people, take them to bigger population centers that have more infrastructure to handle healthcare. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is such a black swan event, but you have to think that the next generation is going to be better prepared for a pandemic and we'll have a better sense of like how to scale up and respond more quickly, which is probably a positive coming out of this. Yeah, you know, I think it's an indirect byproduct of globalization to a certain extent, simply that, you know, when you have an interconnected world like we do now, what happens in Wuhan, China is going to have an impact here, you know, can have an impact here in the United States. And, it, you know, the next, you know, we don't know where the next virus is going to come from. The last, the last serious pandemic was in 1918. And, you know, we're over, you know, 103 years from that. But I suspect that the next one will happen, you know, much sooner than that. And I think we will be better prepared. I also think that we're going to be better prepared just to handle routine infections like pneumonia and flu and all of those things that I think have kind of opened our eyes to, you know, the possibilities of, you know, just simple changes that we can make in, in the way that we manage patients can reduce infection and help decrease the spread of these diseases and have a positive impact long term. No, I love that you bring that up because I remember, I mean, obviously we talked, you know, going back to March 15th, it was that recording and you know, just being marveled by like what Boris Johnson was going to do or was sweet with her, with her yeah. immunity. Right. Um, and then, you know, I remember talking to you maybe six months into this, just saying, Hey, we've got a better sense of like what to do when a COVID patient comes in. I mean, you know, th- those early days, there was really no idea what the hell to do. And you were talking about the different vaccines or treatments or, um, and obviously it does seem like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine as, as a healthcare professional, this has been like an additional graduate degree because it's just the amount of additional research and time you're spending with patients and figure out how to better care for them. Um, hopefully that's going to be a positive outcome as we perform and go forward. No? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that I've, I've got two gra- new graduate degrees, you know, since I um, finished my training. One was during Hurricane Katrina yeah. and, uh, you know, handling a, you know, a massive disaster that happens rapidly. And then you have these, and then you have something like COVID-19, which is kind of a slower moving, you know, um, uh, disaster, but still obviously has significant consequences. But the thing that kind of unites those two is the lack of information at the beginning. And so then there, you know, you don't know what you don't know at that particular juncture. And you're, you know, you're trying to treat these diseases the best way that you can but ultimately, you know, it takes time and it takes resources to better understand what's going on. You know, um, I mean, remember the toilet, you know, the, the toilet paper runs on, you know, in the, yeah. in the beginning of the pandemic and, and people, you know, hoarding food and all of those things. And our infrastructure obviously could withstand that. But, you know, at the same time, 
those are the kind of that's the kind of paranoia that can make <laughs> managing you know you know an illness and managing a disease like this really really trying you know so that's something that we need to going forward we need to realize is that better information management can play a significant role in managing and controlling uh, the population and having a better impact in our communities. As we're recording this, Joe Biden spoke, you know, kind of 50 days in office, but also, you know, gave a really impassioned speech about, you know, I need all my fellow Americans. We need to work with you. You know, the U.S. government's buying more doses. You know, I see in in, uh, the state of Michigan just put out an announcement. They said everybody under or above the age of 16 by April 5th, we'll have, you know, access to the vaccine, which is amazing. Speaking of New Orleans, I think they're restarting live music. Texas, which is, you know, don't mess with Texas. They're, they're going to allow the Texas Rangers to have a full stadium on opening day. Um, uh, there is a lot of excitement, a lot of energy. But me personally, I'm like, are we going to see another wave in a few months? Shouldn't we be more cautious? Uh, we, we, you know, we still only have a handful of our citizens vaccinated as we speak. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that it's a bit premature to be opening up, uh, you know, the stadiums for uh for a rangers game um but you know we you know i can tell you on the ground you know on the you know on the ground here we're talking about relaxing the restrictions that we have even in the hospitals you know right now you you know nobody can stay with patients at this point and so we're starting to think about that but we're thinking about it in a much more gradual fashion um but you know i had a conversation with one of the um you know internal medicine um uh, uh um physicians here and you know it getting kind of towards the herd immunity idea is that, you know, we've had a lot of infections already. You know, people have been exposed, people who basically survived those infections. And, and when you add that in conjunction with the vaccine, I think we're probably closer to herd immunity than we actually anticipate. But I don't, th- I think that the CDC is probably reluctant to go forward and be like, yeah, it's, everything's great now. But I, I think that we have, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic about this, but I really do think that we've turned a corner and I really do think that we're probably um, moving back to normalcy before 2022. I, I am worried that, you know, people will get a little too enthusiastic and, and, and maybe we might have a fourth wave, particularly with the variants that we've seen, you know, in Great Britain and the South African variant. So you have, we have to be a little bit more concerned about that. But, um, but at the same time, um, you know, I am cautiously optimistic that things will return to normal. I actually have to say that I thought that Biden's speech was pretty amazing. And I think Politico was pretty spot on when they said that, you know, this is why Joe Biden was elected president. He is meeting that moment that the loss that he experienced, you know, early on in his career as a senator basically paved the way for this moment for him to, you know, we I think we as Americans recognize that he he actually understands the suffering of the common American. And I I think that, you know, I, I, you know. Uh, you won't get many much praise from me from President Trump, but I think Operation Warp Speed, you know, played a significant role in the turn in the you know the turnout of this this vaccine. So he does deserve credit there. But I think that that's the fundamental difference is that uh, you know I think that President Trump had a tendency to downplay it to try and minimize it, and I think that if he had leaned into it, he he could still be president at this point. But I think that the you know Biden because he rec- we recognize the suffering that he's had in his in his biography. He only he could really give that speech that he gave yesterday. No, 100 percent. I thought, I mean, he's the right man for the job. You know, uh, my wife said while she was watching it, she's like, this is deliciously boring. I mean, this is like the guy, you know, there was, this is there's no theatrics. There's a guy laying out the plan. Um, also, like physically, the way he was like hunched over the podium, you know, talking and like and he used the word my fellow Americans, which I think is super powerful because that, you know, we elect 
the president from the, our citizens. And um, yeah, I think he's the right man for the moment. I think the empathy he's gone through, like he's actually buried members of his family is super impactful. And I, I thought it was a real turning point. I mean, it's interesting you're saying we may already be at herd immunity. I mean, CDC is probably going to be a big No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying no, we're, no, no. we're at herd immunity. We're closer to it than closer, we actually sure. think. Okay. That's all I'm saying. Um, but we should all still get the vaccine. You would advocate oh, yeah. for that. And we should still be yeah. cautious and kind of play it safe and um, don't do anything too crazy, like going maybe to a, a large sporting event in the short term. I, I do want to, you know, uh, discuss a little bit about the politics of the vaccine. When it comes to the, you know, when it comes to the domestic side, the, the first vaccine that we had was the Pfizer vaccine, which was basically two doses, and, um, but it had to be refrigerated. And because of that, there was limited access um, of the vaccine in rural areas where I practice. And so I think there was a real fundamental divide about, you know, with that. And I think that also, um, you know, and this is only anecdotal and this is just me talking, you know, I'm not speaking for anyone else, but I do feel that there was some resistance in communities of color uh, to actually uh, embrace this vaccine. And, uh, and I think that, um, you know, going forward, one of the, one of the big domestic problems that we have with this rollout is not necessarily a problem, but a challenge, shall we say, is that we need to um, bridge that rural divide. And we also need to, uh, you know, convince communities of color that this is in their best interest, you know, and that's, that's a, that's a real challenge. I think it'll be easier with the Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine because it doesn't have to be stored at such a, you know, a cold temperature and it's a single shot. So I think going forward, we'll, we'll be able to meet those challenges, but at the same time, I think that there's a lot left to do before we, um, uh, you know, before we uh, put this behind us, you know, long term. Yeah, hundred percent. The polling I've seen, you know, I mean, you only have like 65 to maybe 70% of us citizens actually want to take the vaccine. Um, so you know, that leaves like hundred million people in our country that don't want to take it. That's a huge number. And also, you know, going across the pond, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is being you know, manufactured in the UK um, already set, as we're recording this, several nations have either put a hold on that or suspended the use of it because of, various, you know, blood clotting issues or people suddenly dying from taking the, uh, the vaccine. And, you know, there may be no direct cause causation to that. And it could just be other underlying issues, but certainly there is a resistance for people to take something that is fairly untested. I mean, you know, we are yeah. only several weeks into this. Well, so the, you know, the, the going back to the Pfizer vaccine, it is a MRNA vaccine, which has never ever been utilized uh, in a vaccine. And, you know, to that point, there are several of, uh, you know, several physicians that I, I know personally who won't take it because they are, they are afraid of the, the side effects. You know, I, I took, I took the vaccine and, and the majority of the physicians in, in my community did. Um, so there is some resistance. It's a double-edged sword. You're trying to roll this thing out as fast as you possibly can to immunize as many people as you possibly can, but there are consequences, um, you know, to these virus, to these vaccines that may be unforeseen. So, you have to be careful with that. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the AstraZeneca, they're going to put a pause on that and probably do some, some research and figure out what's going on. But, you know, COVID-19 itself can produce a hypercoagulable state. Yeah, so yeah, that's what's interesting. I've heard that. Yeah. Is, it, is it a byproduct of the, of the, of the vaccine or is it, is it indirectly a byproduct of the infection itself? You know, and, and that's, the, that's the other thing that goes back right to the beginning of this conversation. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. The greatest problem that we have right now is a lack of information. 
And, and, you know, and, and I think that once, you know, when we look back on this, you know, 15 years from now, it'll be clear, you know, the things that we did right and the things that we did wrong, but, you know, it's hard when you're sitting in the middle of it to make that decision, you know, where to go forward. And I think that, you know, eventually AstraZeneca will figure out, you know, the, the, the reasons that their, uh, their vaccine has an issue. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, if memory serves, I think Johnson and Johnson's uh, vaccine was not as good against the South African variant as it was against, uh, well, you know, yeah. And- well, yeah, getting to a city that we both love, the city of Detroit, you know, the mayor uh, of Detroit famously was offered the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I don't know the number of quantities, but the I guess the numbers, it's only 60 to 70 percent effective uh, and maybe the other vaccines are closer to 90. And the mayor of Detroit said, I don't want the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Two hours later, he said, well, I misspoke. You know, we'll take it. We presume we probably got a call from the White House. Um, but that kind of, you're spot on, like that kind of access to information or disinformation or uncertainty, especially coming from elected leaders is not, is not helpful at all. And last night, as you talked about, Biden was like, listen, I'm going to tell you the truth as much as I know it. And we're going to say, I'm going to deliver the facts on the situation. That's probably the best we can hope for. One point of correction here, though, I think that if memory serves the, um, about 30% of Americans are reluctant to take the vaccine. Um, if, Probably any vaccine. I, I mean, right? In general, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's part of the issue then, too, right? Well, then the other thing though is that if you look at the the Trump voter, uh, Trump voters, forty seven percent of them are yeah. unwilling to take the vaccine. So that's and that's a pretty pretty you know large disparity there. And I you know and I think that that also goes to the you know some of the other issues we saw with January sixth and all these other things that there's a lack of trust in government. It has been a constant diatribe of, of, of the right and, and uh, you know, and, and to a certain extent, even of the left that, you know, government is inefficient, government is not doing its job, government should stay out of our way. And now here we are, like, relying on the government to do one of the largest rollouts of a vaccine in the history of our country, you know, and furthermore, a $1.9 trillion, you know, package to ease the suffering of Americans, but also you know, there's there's you know child tax credit in there. There's you know it's one of the most progressive uh, you know uh, bills you know in, in American history. You know, this is an example, hopefully, of you know government working for us. You know, and that's a hard thing to sometimes you know uh, swallow. You know that that actually when when we when we come together and we unite, we can actually do something pretty pretty amazing. You have anti-vaxxers on the left, for sure. You know, you've got and the left. anti-government folks on the right. Right. Um, which is going to lead to, which I want to talk to you about, this idea which is being kicked around, you know, kind of vaccine passports to allow more travel. And are you going to have certain employers that are going to demand that their employees take the vaccine so we can return to some kind of normalcy in the workplace and just the all the unintended consequences around that, civil liberties? We haven't even vaccinated enough people. And yet there's already, we're already seeing challenges to why people might even want to take the vaccine and how we're, how we're going to do with that as a nation is going to be interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, I think that, you know, when it comes to the passports, I, I, I think that, you know, if you want to go to another country and, and they're requiring that, um, I don't think that, you know, I, I don't think you're in any position to argue against it, that it's an infringement on your civil liberties to do that because you're just, you're, you know, it's, you're traveling to another country. I mean, that's, you know, I, I just don't think that that's, I think that's unreasonable. Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, corporations mandating that you take the vaccine, you know, in order to return back to work, well, I think there may be some issues there. There may be some questions 
um, about that, particularly people who've already been infected. We're going to have enough vaccine, you know, by May for every person here, hopefully in the United States. So, I mean, if you don't want to take it, that's fine, you know, and you can make it, you can stand on principle. But the fact is, is that you, there are consequences to that stand. We have to assume that COVID is going to be around us almost, I don't know, is it, it's going to be like the flu kind of situation. Like people, even next year or two, three years out, are still going to die from COVID because it'll still be lingering? Or do you see that yeah, it's actually I, burning out? Well, I, you know, I foresee that it'll probably be a chronic problem. You know, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't see it as a, you know, just something that flares up and goes away. I think that its impact in the community will be less because more people will be vaccinated, more people have been exposed. Right. But that doesn't mean that it's ever going to go away. You know, um, it'll, it'll be like a flu. I mean, we'll, it'll become like a flu kind of situation where we'll, as a society, there'll be a tolerable number of deaths, whatever we feel that is as right. a country. And well, um, it won't be so taxing on the infrastructure. And, and the other thing is, is that we know how to treat a little bit better now. And we right. can risk stratify people a little bit better. And we have, you know, we have medications that can actively treat these people. So, for example, one of the people that I was, you know, one of the physicians I was talking to just yesterday had said that, you know, um, in January, about half of the patients that he had in, um, uh, in the hospital were COVID positive. Wow. Half. Yeah. And so it really, it, it, essentially, it was bad in January, yet really, you know, got to its worst probably early February. And then after that, it started to trend down. But now he's got, you know, two patients, um, you know, that are, that are COVID positive. He's sending them both home, you know, actually sent them home today. The treatment, you know, will be there and we will be able to effectively manage these patients because we've seen so many of them now. And I think the pooling of resources internationally will allow us to develop the best strategy. Will it all, will it ever go away? Probably not. But um, I do think that, um, I, I do think that we're going to have a strategy, you know, and less people will die from it than, 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 uh, than you know, in, in 2020. Let's go international. So, you know, Mexico reportedly is going to buy uh, almost 36 billion, million, billion, 36 million doses of the Chinese-made uh, vaccine. Right. Um, the Russian vaccine is going to be manufactured in Italy. You know, there's reports now that the U.S. working with India is going to help, you know, vaccinate hopefully Southeast Asia, you know, competing against China. Um is this soft power diplomacy nonsense? Is it important? Is it just the way the world is structured and just don't worry about it and get out with it? You and I have had this conversation multiple times. <laughs> so perhaps a hundred percent that this is a soft power move. I mean, you know, who is, who is best positioned in, in, um, in the Indian ocean to, uh, to counter uh, the Chinese? Well, it's probably India. You know, and so our relationship with India is absolutely essential and playing a role in their vaccination program is a huge deal. You know, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Russia, you know, making a play for that also is, you know, is a, is a power play to demonstrate that they are still in the game when it comes to, you know, international politics. And then obviously the Chinese, it just goes hand in hand with their Belt and Road program and all the other things that Xi is trying to do to demonstrate that he's uh, a capable leader. And I think that, you know, and, and, I think it's I think it's even more important for Xi to have a vaccine available to um, uh, to his citizenry than uh, than the United States, because I think that, you know, the legitimacy of the Communist Party rests on the fact that they take care of their um, their citizens and provide them with some degree of economic comfort. But also, you know, I, I think that, you know, having that vaccine plays a huge role for Xi to to to, to legitimize his power. Yeah, the China stuff I'm really fascinated by 
um, you know, their reported deaths and their reported cases are minimal. I mean, I think there were only like 15,000 deaths, 100,000 uh, reported <laughs> COVID, COVID situation. Um, their, their vaccine rate is now like 0.4%. Like we're at like 1% of our population or one, one for every 100, um, which I guess is 1%. Uh, and then you've got the 2022 games, the Olympic games, you know, that Beijing is going to host and they're not even going to reach herd immunity in 22 for the winter games. I mean, the internal stuff around China, yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And how do we, I'm we're living in a world that's much more global and we've got to trust other nations that are pulling their weight. It's going to be hard to kind of circle that square. I'm going to go, I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't think we're going to attend the 2022 Olympics in China. Dr. Mark uh-huh. making news here. No, no, I'm 100%. And I think the rationale will be uh, multifactorial. One is the, uh, the the treatment of the Uyghurs um, is, you know, it, it, you know, it was labeled genocide by the previous administration. I don't think that Biden has, the Biden administration has gone out that far to say that. But I think that, you know, there's going to be serious pushback uh, for the United States to go, you know, go there after making those kind of declarations and those kind of human rights abuses that we've seen you know, in China. So that's just one component. And then when you add the fact that they may not be completely immunized by the time that we, uh, by the time these games start. And then I also think that, you know, um, you know, look at, look at the, look at the policies, uh, you know, that Biden is employing right now. Are they that dramatically different from Trump from, uh, um, from the previous administration? No. So I don't think the the economic component is going to, is going to be conducive unless there's some serious breakthrough. I just don't see how those three things don't uh, prevent the United States from attending. Well, I think our friends at the uh, Comcast, Peacock, NBC Sports Network probably have a different opinion. Well, I'm so sure we'll they see. do, but I'm, that, does, that doesn't make it any less correct. So, we'll see. Uh, um, but no, you made some news here. Um, as we close out, let me ask you, what should we be doing to make the lives of healthcare workers better? I mean, I think about, uh, I, as you know, I mean, I'm terrified of going to the hospital. I can't even imagine doing it as a profession, I, I think the work you do is just amazing. I think the work the nurses are doing, you know, I think people that got to show up and help deliver food, just amazing. Anything we can do as normal citizens who aren't really on the front lines, aren't on the coal face dealing with this day in and day out. There are a couple of things. One is, uh, first, I want to echo your sentiments on this. Look, I'm just a cardiologist, okay? And, you know, I- <laughs> Just, yeah. Well, no, I mean, seriously, like, I mean, I like, I'm not on the front lines, okay? There are, you know, hundreds of, you know, I mean, there are, you know, there are hundreds of nurses in my community. There are hundreds of primary care doctors. <clears throat> there are hundreds of nurse practitioners. They're on the front lines dealing with this on a, on, on a regular basis. And, and I have to say that, you know, from a mental health standpoint, it has been very taxing on them to deal with, you know, patients who get sick, have a prolonged course, and then they end up dying. And I, you know, look, I, there are a lot of patients, you know, in my practice that have passed away because of their illnesses, because, car, you know, cardiovascular disease is number one, a, a very large risk factor for, um, for COVID exposure, um, you know, but I, I think that one of the things that's unappreciated uh, by the communities is, the, is the, the mental stress that, you know, physicians and nurses and other primary care providers have to undergo every day, you know, yeah. to deal with things. And I, and I think that there's a certain stigma for physicians and, and, and primary care providers to seek help. And I think that that's a fundamental problem. If we could, you know, I think mental health in the United States has been an under-addressed issue for, I mean, since the Reagan administration. But, I, you know, I, I think that 
if there's anything that could happen that could help physicians and, and primary care providers is, is basically to, you know, to, to be able to reach out and say, I need help. I'm having trouble with this. I'm struggling with this and I need some help and not to be ashamed of it and not to be, um, you know, um, and, and to have the resources available to them so they can, they can, they can address it. It's been a really hard year for primary care providers in this country. And, um, and some of them have lost their lives treating the patients in our communities. Yeah. And, um, you know, what more, you know, what more do they have to sacrifice in order to, you know, in order to, to make progress on, you know, on, on the mental health side, you know, I just, I just think that that's, that's doing them a great disservice. Well, I appreciate you uh, making the time. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your friendship. Hopefully uh, I'll get to see you in person sometime in 2021 and we can have a meal together. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal. Maybe maybe we can go to the winter games in uh, Beijing. If the the U.S. doesn't go, maybe we can go. Maybe I can finally make the the Olympic team. No, what we're really going to do is the Premier League. You're going to take me to a couple of Premier Leagues. You promised. You promised we're going. You're in. We're going to take you to uh, Leicester City, Burnley, and Manchester United. <laughs> well, who, oh, okay. I've got a question for you, though. Who's going to win? Who's going to win the Premier League? Well, I think uh, Manchester City is well-positioned. Locked. They're too far away. Um, yeah, sadly. But they've got a hell of a team. I mean, So my Spurs are out now. No chance. Well, I don't know. I don't think <laughs> they're, the Spurs they're out have a chance. Time. They certainly uh, have the best coach in the league with Jose. Uh, or Jose, sorry, Jose Marino. And the great thing about Tottenham is they have the best logo in the league. I mean, is there a better logo? No. I don't think so. Don't of course think not. So. I don't think so. But no, we should check that out. They have a new stadium too. So let's add that to the list. All right, man. Love it. So thank you very much, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Brigadoon Radio. Brigadoon is where entrepreneurs and thought leaders gather. For more information, please visit thebrigadoon.com.